0: Storgy, the online magazine for lovers of fiction. Check out our dystopian and horror anthologies along with specialized merchandise. All these and more are available on our website, storgy.com. Welcome everybody to the second in series of the Comma Press podcast. Uh, this series is looking at futurism, futurology and everything relating to the future tense. Um, and this particular episode we'll be discussing um, Arab science fiction, in particular uh, Iraqi science fiction. Um, today I'm very honoured and privileged to have uh, uh, Sinead Murphy, um, who is uh, a lecturer in English and comparative literature at King's College London. Uh, and whose PhD uh, looked at contemporary Arabic speculative fiction in English. Um, Annie Webster, who is a PhD student at SOAS, whose thesis is looking at uh, stories of creative destruction in post-2003 Iraq fiction. Uh, and Anoud, who is an Iraqi-born writer currently living in uh, Algiers. Uh, Anoud is, uh, I have to say, is a pseudonym, uh, and as we talk about her work, you'll perhaps begin to understand why she uses a pseudonym. And Anu contributed a story called Karamana, uh, which was one of the stories in Iraq Plus 100, which is the focus of uh, today's uh, discussion. When Hassan and I started to put together uh, ideas for an anthology, um We wanted to give a platform to other Iraqi writers um, who maybe hadn't had the opportunities that Hassan had. Hassan had found himself in uh, the spotlight, really, with uh, his first two collections of short stories. Um, And he wanted to kind of share that spotlight with other writers. Uh, We came up with the idea of um, using the date, 2103, um, as a kind of focus point for speculative fiction set in Iraq by Iraqi writers, because... The tenth anniversary of the two thousand and three invasion had just passed um, without much notice, and there was a sense that um, the two thousand and three invasion uh, by by British and American forces was kind of uh, fading from memory and wasn 't being talked about and was it would, you know in danger of becoming one of the many many kind of foreign policy atrocities uh, which we just forget about and we don 't talk about and it, um, even though it has very very long term uh, kind of repercussions, um, and in 2013, 2014, Hassan and I were talking about um, uh, putting together a book which showed the long-term uh, consequences of, of 2003 by literally asking writers to set their stories 100 years after this event. We didn't really think about it as a science fiction project at the time, um, but we soon began to realize that we were in the middle of a of a potential kind of resurgence in science fiction. There were a number of Iraqi writers. Uh, Hassan himself, uh, Ahmed Sadawi, uh, uh, and others who were using science fiction for the first time, um, and we realised that we'd kind of walked into a uh, a, a bit of a, a hot topic, a bit of a kind of a phenomenon which which seemed to be happening around Arab science fiction in particular. So my first question to to Sinead and Annie really is why now and um, and why hasn't there been a, a tradition of science fiction in Arab writing before this point? Um, and is it just a, a kind of a, a construct? Is it just that we're paying attention?
1: Right, well it's, it's such an interesting question, and I think it's one on everybody's minds now that there does seem to be this sort of uptick or upsurge in um, contemporary Arabic science fiction. Um, and one of the things that my own research was interested in was the degree to which this fiction is also being amplified in English translation. So I think that picks up on the end of your question, really. Um, to a degree, I think that there is a sort of a set of market forces behind the open door, which there now seems to be to or to Arab writers who want to, to write in this generic mode. Um, at the same time, I, I'm also um, really fascinated by the kind of locked binary that there seems to be between um, whether there's uh, a long-standing genealogy of science fiction in Arabic and whether that legitimizes the current trend or whether that's even important. Um, I'm, I'm definitely interested in looking at the um, Arab sources that have kind of fed into the current trend but also not suggesting that there needs to be this kind of long-standing history in competition with the Anglophone set of science fictional works that we're possibly more familiar with as, as English language readers.
0: So you think that there is, a, there is a, a need for it or an appetite for it and that's influenced our perception of whether it's there or not.
1: Uh, do you mean with English language readers, yeah. let's say? I think that's true. I think um, it's fascinating. It's like a bit of a chicken and egg question. Yeah. Um, I think uh, to a degree, um, I, I wouldn't say that it's like the the readership's appetite that has created this space. I think a lot of our writers have sort of muscled their way into this space, which um, they haven't always been welcomed into. There's a really... Um, there's uh, some some of the coverage, especially mainstream coverage, has this narrative of like belatedness around our writers um, starting to experiment with this genre, which I think is really problematic and wrong. Um, but at the at the same time that um, you have that on the one hand, um, writers like Blossom, who you referenced, um, managed to uh, secure some prestigious literary and translation prizes. I think that creates a sense of um, the opportunity to be more aware of the amount of writing, the amount of experimental writing, science fiction, or you know any of the fantastic or speculative formal modes, otherwise that is actually already taking place um, in with Arab writers, but not necessarily well known or supported by infrastructures of translation or, or publication. Um, but I, I mean, I, I think probably the writer amongst <laughs> us can speak to that also more articulately than
0: me. Well, before we go to Anud, mm-hmm. um Annie, I was uh, I was very curious about the title of or, or the subject, the focus of your your thesis. Uh, this idea of uh, stories of creative destruction. What do you mean by that? Mm.
2: So the term creative destruction was first used by the economist Joseph Schumpeter in his book um, Capitalism, Socialism and Democracy, which was published in 1942. And he uses this term to describe how capitalism is characterised by what he calls the perennial gale of creative destruction. And it's this idea that economic structures have to be kind of relentlessly destroyed to be created anew, and this creates the kind of perennial gale. And so I think he uses this to kind of describe how moments of economic crisis can also be moments of economic creativity. So, for example, sort of most prominently related to this, um, we have 9/11, which was a moment at which the epicenter of late American capitalism was materially, symbolically attacked. But it also led to this huge development in America's um, military industry complex. And I think then what we see in Iraq is this kind of um, implementation of neoliberal forms of creative destruction so the economic state the iraqi state is sort of um, reformed its involvement in the country's economy is minimized it's open up to foreign investments and i'm interested in how these texts kind of emerge from these conditions of creative destruction and through the kind of playful logics, the playful ways in which they engage with genres such as science fiction, expose the cruelty, but also so often the absurdity of these economic principles. Um, But then kind of taking it further than that, and, and I think this engages with your interest in how this literature circulates amongst English language or international readers. Is how these texts circulate within conditions of creative destruction so i get the sense with many of these texts the authors kind of anticipate how their writing might be received as a kind of act of documenting conflict or bearing witness to this conflict and they exploit this kind of opportunity or play with the reader um, play with really expectations and they're kind of very aware of the way in which they kind of become these go-between sort of figures Um, so i think the sense that i'm using the term creative destruction is drawing on kind of economic and political history, but also engaging with how this term has been used more recently by art historians and literary theorists to talk about much broader kind of tensions between acts of creativity and moments of destruction.
0: And has your research looked at um, the the kind of distribution of texts by writers who are uh, either settled in the West uh, or in a state of refugee kind of status, uh, against writers who are, are still in Newark?
2: So the approach that I've taken is not to draw any kind of sharp binary between writers within Iraq or outside of Iraq, Um, I mean, I think historically, Iraq's literary culture has been read as having something of a binary shape. And I think now, particularly with the internet, what we're seeing is it becoming more kaleidoscopic. Um, So you have iraqstory.com, which was um, partially started by Hassan Blasim. And there you have a huge archive online in Arabic of Iraqi authors from within the country, outside of the country, all their texts there in Iraq, available across for anyone to access who can who can uh read a, read Arabic. Um so yeah, trying to I think move beyond this kind of binary.
0: There's uh there's a quote that I remember um well it was it was just a throwaway comment that Anne Enright, the author uh, the Irish novelist Anne Enright made at a festival in in Croatia that I was at once when she was talking about the um the recent history the kind of late 20th century Irish novel. And she talked about the fact that in the 80s, there was a kind of an explosion of Irish novel writing. And it, be- it was the hottest thing in the mm. English market. And she had this line, the English do love to read uh, novels or literature by the people that are bombing them. Uh, <laughs> and it's kind of this, it's a very middle class. And, she, you know, it's a good point. Uh, it's a very middle class kind of... Um, I don't know if there's an element of white messiah in there as well, Mm -hmm. kind of reaching out to the other and trying to uh, overcome the other that they themselves have uh, been complicit in creating. Um, Is this part of the of of uh, you know this recent this recent uptake in in uh, Arabic and Iraqi science fiction part of that? Do you feel
2: so um, one. Fascinating Iraqi author who's writing at the moment is Sinan Antun, um, who was born in Iraq but now lives in America, and he writes in Arabic and his work has been translated into English, some by himself and some by uh, other translators. And he warns against um, a recent forensic interest in Iraqi literature. So I think this is something that we have to kind of be careful about why we're taking an interest in these texts now, and there is a risk perhaps that some of these texts might be read as a kind of delayed or belated response to kind of soldiers turned authors, coalition literature coming out of the Iraq war. Um, I think that also plays into much broader questions in the kind of history of how modern Arabic literature has been studied in the West. And this kind of need to kind of come to these texts with a political reading a desire to read politics into these texts. Mm. Um, th- yeah, that is it's is kind of always been around but is particularly poignant I think at this at this moment.
0: Uh, Anud, I'll I'll turn to you at this point. It's very interesting that uh, your first story, uh, um, published with comma, you've you've written a a number since then, uh, was set in the future. It's a science fiction kind of... uh, It's a a more recognisably science fiction story in the Iraq 100 anthology. Can you talk us through uh, how that story came about? I know I was emailing you for a year or so before that... um, and there was a long delay, actually, in the production of this book because ISIS happened right in the middle of it um, and nobody wanted to write about ISIS. Um, and I was emailing you away for possibly two years and then suddenly there was a, there was a story in my inbox. How did that come about?
3: Yes, um, well, thank you for inviting me uh, with uh, your very impressive guests. Uh, so I was struggling to write... Um, anything in science fiction. The idea was to write something that was futuristic or science fictiony. And um, I've always written since I was a child, I'd never had anything published. And to me, writing was therapy. And I, I always wrote um, to reflect reality to reflect war bombings, economic sanction. And I just, it was a form of therapy to just Uh, write what I see, write what I feel. And I think also my writing was influenced by my grandfather's library and a lot of it was Russian classics and so on. So it was very realistic and very raw that way. And I felt that I was um, struggling to imagine something from scratch. I am used to describing what I see. I see and I feel things in a very amplified way and i just describe it um so we were emailing back and forth and i was trying really hard to to create something and it was very difficult for me because um it was just too much liberty for me i've always had rules and it's just how how i was brought up and how education is in iraq they tell you what to think and it's not a good thing but You're so used to the structure that when there's anarchy, you're lost. Um, And um, and then I uh, I was living in London at the time and I had to um, travel for a week to to visit family. And I came back and um, uh, it wasn't my first trip uh, in and out of the UK. I had my visa, my passport. um, Everything was in order. I was a student at the time. And out of the blue at the airport, they tell me, uh, we don't think this visa is valid and um, uh, you are not allowed back in. Um, and then it took a few hours for them to sort out that there was nothing wrong with my visa, that it was still valid, that I hadn't graduated. And um, and and they let me go. Um, but the and it happens. I, I get that. But um What got me was the way I was treated at the airport. Um, And um, uh, there was a lot of um, uh, pointing fingers and um, saying things like, oh, don't give us the solicitor talk. And we're going to handcuff you and deport you and things like that. And so it was it was very difficult for me because up until that moment, I hadn't felt um, any different from any of my friends or peers and a lot of them happen to be either dual national Iraqis or for the most part expats because um, I come from a crowd that um, I just feel more at home and more comfortable in my own skin with uh, friends who are not traditionally Arab or Muslim Um, and I, I I can let my hair down and have a beer and hang out with my friends and not be judged. And so it was a very strange moment for me. And I had a friend who was American, a close friend of mine. And I, we were texting back and forth. And I was telling her, you will not believe what is going on. And, um, and uh, she was very sympathetic. She's my friend. We've, we've been friends for years. And, um, and then she said something like, I understand. And, and I snapped at her. And I said, no, you're, you're, you're a white girl. You do not understand. And I immediately took that back and I, I still cringe because she's my friend. And suddenly she went from being a person to being a skin color or a stereotype. I cringe every time I think of it. Um, it brought out the worst in me and it was, it was not, it was not a good, um, it was not a good day. Um, Although I guess in the end it was because they they let me go, um, and so the next morning I uh, I woke up I I had a massive headache, and I crawled out of bed and I I know I can't curse here but I had this very go fu attitude. <laughs> um, of course, you can curse. And uh, and I I just crawled out of bed onto my desk, and and I started writing and and I thought. Um, I thought it would offend you, Ra. In a way, it was, I'm sorry, it was an F you to everyone, including you. It was like, I'm going to write this and I don't care what they think of it. Screw it. I'm tired. Um, And then I hit send. And then, you know, that feeling when you send an angry email and you go like, oh my God, what have I done? Um, And to my surprise, you wrote back and you were thrilled with it. And then you kept asking me questions about it. And it went from being something of a page and a half to three times the length because you kept asking me well, what happens here and what happens there and can you add to this and add to that and then it just morphed into the, the story that is now in the in in the book.
0: Um, would you like to read the opening passage?
3: Do I have a choice? <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, the day Kahramana was to be wed to Mullah Hashish she stabbed him in the right eye and ran to the American annex of Sulaimania. The local media of the Islamic empire of Wadi Hashish had not yet caught up on the matter. While the rest of the world was using holographics because maintaining fiber optic cables across water war zones had proved impossible. Wadi Hashish considered anything but paper newspapers printed on metal presses to be Western blasphemy. Plus, the people of Wadi Hashish were never in a hurry. By the time Kahramana had snuck out of the last Wadi Hashish checkpoint, Akbar Al-Imara, News of the Empire, had just ran this on their front page. Oh, what a joyous day of jubilation, Allahu Akbar. The Islamic State of Wadi Hashish today wears its festive green and black ribbons on every street lamp. Civil servants have been ordered by the great, the brave lion, the sword of Allah, Amir Mullah Hashish. May Allah reward him in abundance to cook giant pots of lamb stew at every intersection to feed the poor. As a gesture of his generosity on the day he is to be wed to the most beautiful woman in the empire. According to our sisters as the virtuous emir, may Allah award him in abundance, has never laid eyes on a woman before. No other than our blue-eyed sister Kahramana. The grand wedding reception for men will be held at the courtyard outside Wadi Hashish municipality tomorrow at sunset. Attendance is mandatory.
0: Thanks. That gives us a little bit of a, a sense of uh, how 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 sarcastic you 're being um, and the as well as the, the, the kind of uh, the future setting and the the um, unusual uh, geopolitical kind of setup which uh, this story exists within um, one of the kind of the real senses of modernity you get from that story is the media kind of language. Um, it's there's full of reports from the border about this this character who's become a, a poster child for uh for the kind of refugees um and there's uh it, the the one thing it it always reminded me of was kind of S- south park really it's kind of that mocking of the news report from the ground um and uh the, the complete kind of absurdity of that language of of media um you kind of brought a little bit of your own experience into that, didn't you? Because you had worked as a journalist.
3: uh, Yes, yes.
0: And uh, was it was it more kind of your own personal real experience or or straight South Park? Uh,
3: It was a mix of both. Um, I am guilty of binging on South Park. I like I like watching things that are silly because sometimes my brain is on overload when you when you live a grim reality. and I just I like how in your face and just silly it is. And um, and I think there's uh, a power, not specifically in South Park, but I think to be able to make fun of something without lecturing people. And then people leave with a message, you, you're not on your moral high horses, they say, but you you are reflecting something. And at the same time, people are not fatigued and exhausted by it. Um so there's a, there's an element of of that. Um and uh yes, working with the media, working with international humanitarian organizations in Iraq, um just there are a lot of extremely well-intended and very capable people um who who work with the UN and with international NGOs in Iraq, but there's also a lot of the other where um, everyone wants to talk to me because I'm Iraqi, and everyone wants to put me on a pedestal. And I could say nonsense, and it'll be the Bible because I'm Iraqi, and they want to believe it. And so, there was a lot of that ridiculousness in it, uh, which which comes from uh, from reality, from from people I've met and and things I've seen. Yes.
0: Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, your choice of Karamana as a character. Uh, bef- uh, before we came today, I quickly uh, looked at the Wikipedia page for a Thousand and One Nights and it listed... Uh, s- uh elements of science fiction, which uh, might surprise people who are not familiar with it. There's a quest for a herb of mortality. There's societies of gins, mermaids, talking serpents and talking trees. There's an underwater sub- submarine society, which is a, a direct reflection of what's going on on land. There's a primitive version of communism. There's petrified humans, lifelike humanoid androids and automata, seductive marionettes who dance without strings, a brass robot horseman, a flying mechanical remote-controlled ebony horse, a robot in the form of a sailor and of course a flying carpet uh, it's a rich kind of treasure trove of uh, of surrealism uh comedy, fantastic storytelling, but also this this other element which is for all intents and purposes science fiction um, Tell me about your relationship with thousand and one
3: nights sure um so as you mentioned, A Thousand and One Nights is, is all of those elements, which in a way some people look at as science fiction. And um, it's not just A Thousand and One Nights. It's just if you look at a lot of the folk tales and the, the the stories that, you know, the nannies and the grannies tell, there's a lot of elements of magic and genies and things that could pass for science fiction. So it's not new to Iraq. It's just it now it's, it's being written and, and, and 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 being looked at that way, but um, so back to a thousand and one nights. I um, my grandfather had a, a massive library, and he had um, the the book series of a thousand and one nights. It was written in um, well, the, the books he had were in Arabic, and um, and it was it was quite adult content for for my age. I wasn't supposed to read it, which just made it more appealing. And there's a lot of um, a lot of strong female characters, very seductive characters um fantastic adventures and um kahramana was uh one of uh many female figures um in a thousand and one nights they're not bound by modesty or religion or any of that they're very they're very powerful and very seductive and very smart and uh, so the thing that struck me with with kahramana um as a child, when I read it in, in the end of the story, uh, she um, rescues uh, the family she was with by uh, by killing the 40 thieves. And then we move on in the story and she's awarded for her bravery and so on. And I remember as a child thinking, can you be a good person to kill 40 people? Is it okay to kill 40 people? And... Why is why is it okay to kill 40 people? This is crazy. Um, so there was that. But at the same time, she was such a strong female character. And that stayed with me into adulthood. And I would think of it a lot. Um, and I would think of Kahramana. She's not your um, submissive uh, uh, Arab woman, uh, which unfortunately isn't a stereotype at least in the, in in my family surroundings men rule wives follow their husbands they get bossed around um not not all women get treated nicely by their husbands their careers come second it's i mean they're second class citizens um and so i would always look back at kahramana and and feel like yeah, there's there's a woman who can do things, um, so she stuck with me, and I guess on some subconscious level, that's that's what came out uh, the day um, the day I had that airport fiasco. I I can't quite explain it. It was one of those moments where I just sat down and and just the words started pouring, and that, that was it.
0: And uh, soon after this book was published, you uh, moved to America, and within a matter of days. Uh, or, or weeks of you moving to America, um, uh, Trump announced his travel ban in January 2017. It must have felt like you were kind of caught in a in, in a bit of a uh, kind of Groundhog Day scenario, or an absurdist kind of episode from from a story like Caldamana.
3: Yes, it feels like that all the time. I made it just in the neck of time uh, before the travel ban. Yeah. I mean, when I landed in, uh, in JFK, I had all my papers in order and uh, the immigration officer was quite actually nice and joking around. And like I had no I felt I felt no threat, nothing. I, you know, um, and, and most of the people I have met, uh, especially in New York, um, they're not super nice to me because I'm Iraqi, but they're not rude to me either. They don't care. You You can you're living here. You're like everyone else, which is what I like about a big cosmopolitan city. People just you blend and um yes, so there's there's the political reality, but then there's living in a large cosmopolitan city like New York, so in a way, I didn't quite feel it living in New York um but then you can also see every time you go out for dinner with new yorkers they're 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 angry and red in the face when they start talking politics and you think they're going to choke on their dinner, so there's there's that it yes. It's very comical and, and very scary at the same time.
0: I've worked on uh, two books uh, now where we've, um, we've asked uh, Palestinian writers and Iraqi writers to write stories set in the future and they've produced kind of dystopias. And there's been a, an interesting conversation about what a dystopia is. Um, and a lot of the time I feel that there's, a, there's almost like a... Not a language gap, but a cultural gap, because we in the West, and by that I mean kind of uh, indigenous whites, uh, Western Europeans or uh, North Americans, have never really lived under an occupation, under uh, an invasion, um, under any kind of totalitarian regime. And yet... Uh, our science fiction appetite for stories set in those kind of environments, where there's rebels or resistance fighters fighting against some kind of evil empire, is is just uh, it's just bottomless. Our, our appetite for that is huge. We're kind of obsessed with dystopias. We're obsessed with stories of resistance movements, you know, fighting empires, etc., etc. And yet, none of us have a, have a f- the faintest clue what any of these things are really like. So we go to the future, the distant future, so that it can be our story in the distant future, perhaps, or we can relate to it, or we go to a, a galaxy far, far away, so it can be our story. And yet, there's there's what we would call dystopia uh, happening, you know, all around us in other parts of the world. Um, and to ask to ask Iraqi writers or Palestinian writers to uh, kind of enter into this conversation about dystopia or is is almost ironic, really, because they don't they don't need to you know for us the the trump travel ban was uh kind of uh horrifying but it was fairly abstract for a lot of people it was a it was a it was a bad thing but we didn't really know what it meant and for a lot of muslim people from around the world there was nothing new about it and it was a completely different experience it was a very very real you know dystopic experience almost it was you know it it's a it's a very personal experience and how you bridge those two perspectives is extremely hard um do you feel that science fiction for you is a method of doing that in the future or do you think uh there's there are more ways of kind of bridging that that lack of understanding
3: well what is dystopia to you as you said is reality to to someone from iraq or syria or yemen or afghanistan or um or other countries suffering like that so i don't think I won't speak for Iraqi writers in general, but to speak for myself, um, I don't need to use science fiction to um, create a dystopia, or because our reality is is, is quite grim. Um, so it's not a tool that I personally would need to describe how horrific Iraq can be. Um, for me, it was the opposite. It was trying to reimagine the horrors and recreate them into this fantastical world. Um, so, for me personally, it was it was a bit of a, it was uh, a bit of a hurdle, a bit of getting me out of my comfort zone to reimagine a reality. Uh, but if you want dystopia, I could give it to you straight up without needing to create Karamana and magic carpets and, and Wadi Hashish and, and all of that.
0: There were two stories in the book which, went back to A Thousand and One Nights there's your story which was the, t- t- the title of it is A Karamara and there's also uh, Zara al Habobi* story which is uh, all about a statue of uh, of Scheherazade and um, lots of the reviews about the book talked about um, Iraq's kind of uh uh, speculative or fantastical past in terms of its literature um, and, and the, the Middle East and the Arab worlds generally do you feel that that's kind of problematic to go that far back um, and to only have, have that as a reference point? Um, Anud just explained that it was very much a, a childhood uh, kind of source it wasn't some kind of reaching back to a, a romanticised past it was, it was her childhood but do you think from a, kind of a Western reader's point of view it's, it's dangerous? Sinead.
2: I don't think it's necessarily dangerous as such but it is if you want to kind of take a genealogical perspective on the evolution of this literature I think you need to kind of understand that there is also a phase of very much kind of realist literature in the later part of the 20th century and kind of I mean I don't think it's necessarily productive to kind of get back to discussions of what was the first novel or the first short story in, in Iraqi literary history because there's many studies that try to, to trace that um, but I think understanding the kind of waves of of literary trends that have responded to different kind of political moments and the ways in which realism has been necessary at certain stages and perhaps a kind of more speculative fantastical um frame of reference necessary others and kind of how those two have interacted at certain moments as well i think that's Mm. what i would say so i would warn against sort of the use of kind of the term dangerous but yeah perhaps a kind of multi-spective multi-perspective kind of approach.
1: I, I couldn't agree more with the mm-hmm. kind of like who got there first um, mm-hmm. kind of style of genealogy. Um, I, I, I think I agree with you and whether it's dangerous or not is one question, but whether it's useful or productive mm-hmm. is also, I think, uh, questionable when, when you think about it that way. But um, I, I think it is worthwhile to think about the sort of like nodal connections between some of the contemporary texts that we're seeing and some of those that have influenced the writers that that have delivered them to us, but also the, the kind of um, Points of reference that a you know an Anglophone reader might take to to that work. Um, I was struck by what you said about um, the Thousand One Nights and Kahramana and the the kind of uh, type of female figure that she represents, and um, about also the kind of elements of satire and comedy both in the Thousand One Nights and in your own work. Um, and I think that kind of borrowing and intertextuality is actually itself characteristic of science fiction as we know it. You know, it's kind of a uh, the type of writing that is characterized both by traversing boundaries and making strange but also it relies on both the writer and the reader um, kind of in, in having an exchange with these recognizable tropes and motifs and that that is something that the genre proliferates upon so um, I think that looking at the different points of reference that we've found to be productive both as readers and writers um, in a kind of a like a, a network or a spectrum mm-hmm. the way you describe is, is is more useful than a kind of a linear genealogy
0: the introduction by Hassan Blasim to to this book um, uh, comes from a, a, a fairly secular point of view. He's a he's mm-hmm. a pretty secular writer, and um, he sort of name checks uh, twelve uh, fifty eight. This this moment when uh, uh, Halagu Khan and the Mughals kind of sacked uh, Baghdad uh, brought this this period of this golden age of uh, of science and research uh, that uh, that Baghdad represented at the time to an end. Um, Baghdad was famous for the House of Wisdom and for all the uh, the, the, the sort of groundbreaking work that was done by mathematicians and and physicists and and medics and philosophers. Uh, We know, obviously, about people like like, uh, Al-Kharizmi, who who gave his name to algorithm and invented algebra. We know about that kind of golden age of of science and study. And uh, Hassan, in in his introduction, sort of... um, tries to kind of leapfrog from that point uh with the fall of 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 that era and, and the fall of uh baghdad in 1258 to to the present or to the to the near future and there is this famous story which i've i found out every uh arabic school child is told that in in 1258 w- when the city was kind of being burnt down the library and the, the house of wisdom was uh torn to pieces and all the books were thrown into the Tigris, the river um, and the river famously run, ran black and blue with the inks of these books. And it's a great kind of uh, uh, kind of metaphor or, or kind of symbol of the loss of a study, the loss of this era, uh, this, this wisdom, this research, this thought. Um, and at uh, the end of a kind of a not a secular uh, civilization, but a, a, a civilization which puts science and research very much first, um, in terms of reconfiguring um uh where arab science fiction can go uh, and particular iraqi science fiction is this a useful reference point or again is it kind of problematic and are we venturing into romanticism or even god forbid um orientalism with that kind of nostalgia for that um for that period
1: Mm. so uh, kind of a great point really because i think that there's a certainly a tipping point where it can very easily um be cast in this romanticized orientalizing light um and at the same time um a real um studied and considered attention to the kind of loss of cultural heritage in iraq and elsewhere in the region is important if um sort of contemporary works are to um historicize on their own terms i think um i was uh, i was struck by when you were mentioning um the introduction um, to the to the volume about um, the opening of a text called The Palestinian Novel um, by an academic called Bashir Abu Manih, And he opens it by talking about the destruction of Jabra, Ibrahim Jabra's house um, and how that represented um, such a considerable moment of loss uh, of cultural heri- heritage, not just for Palestinians, but for Iraqis as well. And um, I think that kind of sense of shared loss un- underscores a lot of the the fictional writing in this volume, um, the idea that stories that are set in highly technologized futures nonetheless carry this anxiety about memory and about personal and individuated memory in those technologized futures, I think um, represents sort of how, how we can best think through that, that problem of, of loss. Um, I, don't
2: think. I think also 1250 is a moment that is repeatedly coming up in imaginings mm-hmm. of the future or the present um, in these texts, so for example, um, Shahad al-Rawi's novel, um, The Baghdad Clock, it concludes with a section called The Book of the Future, um, and it takes place around this um, clock, the the Baghdad clock in Baghdad, and it it describes the four faces of the clock, um, one of which is pointing to 1250, uh, a moment in 1250, I'm not sure how a clock can point to 1258, but she she (laughs) makes the point that it's it's a specific time, I think, in 1258, and uh, one side of the clock points to, I think it's the point at which... um, American, the, Ameri- the U.S. led invasion in 2003, and so this sense of these temporalities happening at once around this clock, and then figures from Iraqi history kind of um, in, sometimes in forms of statues as well come to life and start reenacting kind of moments from Iraq's history around this clock, interacting with one another in a completely sort of disjointed temporality. You also have um, Sinan Antun um, in a piece um, written for Al Ahram, I think, shortly after the 2003 invasion, talking about how he had only ever been able to read about the fall of Baghdad in these ancient tombs and then now he can switch the TV on and see it live mm. so I think that point of, of contrast and, and familiarity is certainly drawn upon in, in several texts
0: and there's a that, that moment of loss is also kind of echoed in a story by Hassan Blasim uh, called uh, a hole where I think he's a, the the main character is a museum guard uh, who is fleeing um, the museum because people are ransacking it for, for, you know, just people are looting it. Um, mm-hmm. And in the process of fleeing, um, he then gets chased by somebody else and he falls down a hole and meets various other characters from different points in time, like mm-hmm. a Russian soldier and a soldier from the future and uh, what have you. And, but that's, again, about this moment of, of, of loss, of cultural kind of uh, vandalism. And uh, mm-hmm. and it's it's also a, a point that we go to in uh, in lots of other kind of analyses of world cultural history i don't know if you saw the the recent bbc reboot of civilizations with simon sharma and mary beard and others uh, the very first episode of that he talks about um a curator who uh, puts his life on the line uh, for uh, a series of artifacts which are like which are under threat from these uh, uh, from from isis as as it happened not not from uh, the The looters after two thousand and three, but it's the same kind of um, it's the same sense of loss or the sense of the sense of threat going back to you uh, Anud, um you've you you're from Mosul originally um, you, you wrote this story when uh, um, when Mosul was kind of the the capital of the the kind of ISIS uh, movement. Um, and was the, it's, its central base and was the first city really to fall um, and you've been back since and, uh, and obviously the uh, Mosul has been retaken. Um, how has it changed and what was that whole experience like um, being from that city and having family there and not being able to return and then uh, three or four years later going back?
3: Sorry, huge question. Um, well, um, uh, Yes, so I, I um I returned to Mosul um, exactly a year ago, uh, for a quick visit, and uh, it was very nerve-wracking. I was on my toes. Um, ISIS have done a number of things to people. Um, first of all, it has made them uh, question their faith. Uh, and, and they've become very angry about it. So Mosul historically has always been quite conservative. It's a place for scholars and historians and it's known for its academia. And Mosul University, um, up until the economic sanctions in 90, the early 1990s, um, Mosul University was very highly regarded in Iraq. It was one of the top. Uh, so it has that academia, but it al- it's also a very conservative city. So. Um, uh, Women will throw a scarf over their head, not necessarily a proper hijab, but a woman will stand out without a headscarf, and it's uh, um, things about uh, image and shame and family honor and like those um, uh, symbols are very strong in Mosul. It is a very conservative uh, culture. You will not be called dead eating in Ramadan in Mosul, um, so it's just it's always been conservative, and and to hear my cousin who. Um, has always worn a, a headscarf. Nobody's forced her. She's comfortable in it. She feels naked without it. It's it's just she's, she's always had it and her mom has had it and her mom before that. Um, and she said that she started to resent it. She started to say, I feel this headscarf around my neck is suffocating me and I want to tear it off and burn it to a million pieces. And this is a woman who's who's always been comfortable and feeling naked without it. Um, her husband will tell me things like, I just felt like smoking a cigarette in the middle of the street in Ramadan after ISIS left, and I just felt like cursing at anyone. I was ready to pick a fight. If someone said, it's, it's Ramadan, why are you smoking a cigarette in public? I wanted to punch him. He made it a point to smoke a cigarette in public in Ramadan. He was that angry. and 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 this is a family who was not forced into religion, uh, they were very lenient. I mean, my family is the kind of family where uh, you'll have a relative who's secular visiting from abroad. He'll be drinking his whiskey, which, which which a lot of the men in my family love. And then there'll be someone else who's, you know, prays five times a day and doesn't drink and everybody will be civil at the dinner table. It's fine. No one has ever been anxious about these things. It's It's just what everybody falls into. So it was interesting to see that intense anger towards uh, their faith. Um, and in a way, I mean, ISIS was a- absolutely horrible and medieval and it's still hard for people to get their head around at the sight of, of, of Yazidi women and girls from seven to 70 with chains around their necks being paraded out at the market for people to buy them. And and families in Mosul started to, quote, buy these girls and send them to their families. And then when ISIS began to find out, they started to execute the people who would buy the, the women and the girls. Um, so things like that are just extremely medieval. Speaking to the more uh, secular cousins and relatives of mine, they feel that even though ISIS was a- an extremely horrible thing to happen to Iraq, it has made people question their faith, which is a good thing. It's not to say that people shouldn't be religious, but uh, when you're brought in a conservative society, you learn to take everything and not question it. Um, so something like the kind of Islamic feminism that you will find, for example, in the Maghreb region, especially in Morocco, where you will have women who are very religious and they defend their faith and they're very, they're very Muslim, but they will also debate that Islam is actually for women's rights, and they, and they interpret texts differently, and they look at it as a way to liberate women and not the other way around, which is a narrative that will not be allowed in, let's say, a more conservative country like Saudi. And a lot of parts of Iraq have just come to accept the classic literature and not challenge it. And so ISIS was the shock to the system That started to have people question these classics and reinterpret, um, why things are the way they are, which was in a way, I'm hesitant to say a good thing because nothing good can come out of this. Um, but, but it was a shock to the system. So there was that, there was that, that it's like waking up from a coma and just wondering what, what the hell have I been sleepwalking all my life? What the hell is going on? Um and then there's the element of of horror where you know people are extremely traumatized and and that will manifest and i don't know how that will manifest but but people are on edge and they've normalized the violence where i'd be sitting with with um with my aunt or my grandmother and they throw a feast because i haven't seen them in like more than 10 years and i say oh granny like the 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 food is really good And she'll say, yes, and uh, I've been wanting to cook it for a while. And uh, every time I want to go out to the market to buy the to buy the tomatoes to make the stew with the lamb, Uh, ISIS would have executed someone and hung him on the street pole. And I go out and then I see someone dead hanging on the street pole and I go back in and I cook something else. And I haven't cooked it for a long while. Eat, eat, eat more. (laughs) And it's just the way that goes from tomato sauce to someone being executed on the street pole. And it's all on the same breath or um, another pretty comical story where my grandmother will complain about her daughter-in-law who she says deliberately cooks food that is salty because she has high blood pressure and she's like she's trying to kill me she deliberately cooks salty food but well you know the kids are home today they couldn't go to school someone walked in and shot their English teacher point blank in the face and the kids are pretty traumatized so now they're home and now she has to deal with them and I feel sorry but she deliberately cooks salty food to spite me all in one breath the horrible and the mundane all in one breath. And that is going to manifest somehow. It traumatized children, domestic abuse, um, health issues, heart attacks, high blood pressure. I don't know, it is going to manifest and nobody's paying attention to it. So it's a very traumatized um, society.
0: When I when I spoke to Hassan uh, a couple of years ago, when we brought this book out, he was I've known him since two thousand and eight two thousand nine. He was at his most optimistic um, at that point. Mosul hadn't been retaken. Uh, the The fight fight back was starting. was just starting um, October two thousand sixteen. Uh, but he was he was really by his standards almost ecstatically optimistic, because he felt like you said people were were, were sick of religion. Um, they'd had two waves of violence, which was violence, uh, you know, based on drawn drawn up on religious lines. Really, the the kind of sectarian violence that followed the invasion two thousand and three and the civil war, um, and then ISIS. Um, and although, as you say, that nothing good can come out of any of the, either of those two waves, all the all the war of two thousand and three, for that matter. Um, Iraq was now entering into a, a kind of new era of questioning of, uh, of um, as you say, kind of a, a more secular um, kind of uh, critique of, uh, of of religion, of Islam, of, of of fundamentalism, and of of certain readings of of Islam. Um, despite the trauma, despite the um, the the kind of inevitable uh, effects and repercussions. Uh, that you're talking about, are you optimistic about Iraq generally at this stage? Um,
3: I hope i'm wrong, but uh no i'm I'm not because um when you study iraq and and uh its its um history uh, since Uh, Since the British mandate was lifted off Iraq until today, you see these waves of violence that come and go, and it's the same cycle that repeats itself, and we don't seem to learn from it. And so what's happening with Iraq right now is you have this very fragmented uh, society. Um, Iraq has always had ethnic tension. Uh, Saddam just put a lid on it by allowing one group to exist and and suppressing the other. So everybody thought that everybody's Sunni, it's not the case. The other side was not allowed to express its opinion, so they were invisible. Um, and then when he went away like a pressure cooker that that popped. Um, a lot of Iraq's um, tension is really sectarian, tribal, ethnic, not specific to religion. Religion is part of the mix. Uh, it may be an excuse. Uh, used as, as justification, but, but it's not really the source of the trouble. It's all this sectarian tension. Iraq has always been uh, this, this, this middle zone, this proxy war between uh, Saudi and Iran. And so if you go as far back as the Ottoman Empire and earlier, uh, Iraq has always been this point of tension. It's Shia and it's Sunni between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I go, I I, I deviate, Um, but to go to go back to your question. So right now I'm I'm not optimistic unless the world learns from this and corrects it. Um, ISIS did something to to uh, to Mosul and parts of Ambar, the areas that it had occupied. It it played Robin Hood. It kicked out the rich and it brought in the poor. Now, Iraq is a very uh, tribal and sect and sectarian uh, um, structure culture. So not only do we have rich and poor, the rich tend to come from certain family names and geographic locations in Mosul, and the poor tend to be from the villages and towns around Mosul. So when you go to the families who have historically lived in Mosul, they tend to be the sort of bourgeois educated and so on. The people who pick the fields and the bricklayers and the housemaids and all of that, they come from Hammam Ali and and, and Tala'far and those areas, those towns that are around Mosul. So what ISIS did is it intimidated the wealthy. A lot of those people left. And ISIS brought in these, these underdogs and it gave them houses, prestige, weapons, authority. And now tables had turned and they were the ones bossing the people who snubbed them. Oh, you want to uh, you want an authorization to go see a doctor in Baghdad? I'll show you. And so there was that. And then when ISIS left or were defeated, um, what was just uh, a class structure and snobbery turned into something much more dangerous. So Mosul has has been broken. And then of course you have the Yazidi villages or or Mosul's uh, Christian community which has always been very Muslawi very Mosul like the Christian identity is a very strong element in Mosul or was and those people do not want to come back and they and they resent their Muslim neighbors why did you not defend me and a lot of people were scared it's not because they sided with ISIS and so these people were being kicked out of their houses and their houses were branded with the Arabic letter noon So they kick them out, they they rape their women, they brand their houses, and their Muslim neighbors have their doors locked and they're hiding inside. And so there is a lot of tension, a lot of of hatred, a lot of resentment. Um, And that is not being addressed. What is being addressed now is, uh, let's rebuild the military. Let's put money into reconstructing those homes. Let's clean up the rubble. But nobody's looking at the social impact. And... What I see happening if this is not addressed, because uh, tension in a community is too abstract. But rolling and bulldozing buildings and rebuilding the army—it's—it's yeah. it's kind of sexy, and it's—you know—it's—it's—it's it's, it's all. We're all muscles, and we're fixing it. It's tangible. It's mm-hmm. tangible, and its it, it looks good on TV, and and all of that. It's—it's it's kind of this this flamboyant thing going on, um, but you need to address the ethnic tension you need to look at these pockets of population that were once affiliated with isis or just guilty by association you have fighters or people who are afraid you have women and children people who were victims but now they're put in these um camps for internally displaced persons or idps as we call them and Mosul doesn't want them back and the 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 towns that they are in want to kick them out and they have nowhere to go and nobody's looking at that hostility and that hatred that has resulted and so what happens and what has happened before in 2000 since 2003 to date is you roll in with the military campaign you defeat them great super now what's next we go away and we wait for it to happen again because we're not dealing with the infrastructure that is causing people to get angry. And if ISIS want to return to Iraq, instead of having to, we've just made it easier for them. They can go to these IDP camps or those towns, plank a flag, let's go. It's easy. They're there. They're geographically located. The, the hostility is there. The hatred is there. And you've just made it strategically and, and logistically easier for them to recruit And my fear is that um, this is not being taken seriously. It's not being addressed. Iraqis don't want to forgive and forget. And the international community is not paying attention to it in their, and I use quotation marks here, de-radicalization efforts. Mm -hmm. Because like I said, it's it's sexy to, 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 to buy weapons and arm the army and bulldoze and build bright new buildings. But what's underneath it is not being addressed. And so... The way I look at it is the Syria crisis is is far from being resolved. The region is far from um, from peace. Um, and I, you hear news headlines saying that ISIS are resurfacing in parts of Syria because you can't keep you can't keep. It, there's going to be a fatigue like Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You can't keep pounding on this over and over and over again. And Does at some point there's going to be fatigue and the social issues are there. And people in Mosul, my family, um, are on the edge of their seat waiting for the next round of crazy.
0: Do you see it as, as similar to the kind of balkanization that happened in uh, in the Balkans? Uh, in that you get these you get a, a greater homogenization of the cultures because you get, you know, people of one religion going to one place and 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 suddenly nations are starting to be defined according to you know their, homo- their homogeneous kind of faith
3: um, yes iraq is definitely heading towards that um, sectarianism is being uh, little by little um, institutionalized mm-hmm. uh, not just geographically but then you know the the kurds will have the the ministry of foreign affairs and the sunnis will have the ministry of defense and and the shiites will have the ministry of health and so on it's just a it's it's a quota who it, it it's it's about political parties but the political parties are all rep, that represented ethnically um so in the end it's it's about ethnicity so yes iraq is is heading uh, towards that and where there's fear there's mistrust and where there's mistrust uh you can sell anything to anyone
0: <sighs> that's <laughs> sorry (laughs) Uh, what uh, what I was going to say or throw in at some point and it now seems very very glib and stupid and irrelevant uh, is it's very interesting Um, H.G. Wells in The the Shape of Things to Come which was a novel uh, he wrote which predicted the Second World War and was made into a a phenomenally moving film uh, called Things to Come he sort of had a had a guess at how the 20th century would play out and he predicted this uh second world war uh with germany uh he saw it as something which would go on for decades and decades and decades um and at the end i think in the in the 80s or the 90s uh, uh, britain had become like a a medieval country it had been reduced to its knees the infrastructure had gone there was no government as such and suddenly there are these saviors that come fly over Britain and it's fly over the countryside and start landing and there are these these wonderful planes uh, and they're called there's this group called Wings Over the World, and it's kind of like a new United Nations, hilariously perhaps, uh, morbidly ironically, um, the new center of the world power and these saviors are all coming from Basra, uh, they're all coming from Iraq, um, and. There is in, when we put this book together, um, there were lots and lots of submissions. There were something like 50 submissions and we couldn't take them all. But there were lots of submissions which kind of um, saw, a similar to H.G. Wells, this kind of inversion of the world order and that um, lots of them talked about America kind of fragmenting into different states or at least two, two states. Um, uh, America becoming an increasingly kind of fundamentalist uh, society, which was tearing itself apart, whilst whilst the Middle East has, was returning to its its glory days uh, as a place of peace and science and study. Um, obviously, that's not true in the latter half. <laughs> you know, the good bit isn't coming true. Uh, but there is a sense of the bad bit coming true uh, from from there. That perspective, I, I have one question to ask about. Or I have two questions to ask about that. One is, is that a common Kind of theme that you've found in Iraqi literature or Arabic literature of of predicting a kind of a a a downfall of the West and is it just wishful thinking or is it based on uh, or is it based on kind of uh, experience or a kind of insight
1: it's ah uh, it's really interesting, I think, to think about yeah, that relationship between sort of futurism and prediction because there's sort of an overlap between them, but not like a natural progression I think in in a lot of the science fictional stories that we read, um like both Iraqi and more generally um when you were talking about um that conception of like predicting historical events unfolding, I was actually thinking of um orwell's line about human history being characterized by you know the boots stamping on the human face forever and it it comes back to how you were describing the failure of understanding the root causes of um sort of social and and cultural and political change um experienced on kind of levels of community and and regionally specific um kind of uh, kind of circles um and the the response to that being these kind of large-scale changes that don't pay respect to that and i think that's something that um both the Iraqi authors that we read here and in general science fiction authors are really adept at um, sort of drawing attention to that scale, that scaling exercise. So I think the short story form is a fascinating way to go about this because um, the writers are sort of tasked with predicting this imagined universe, this imagined world, but in a very specific, like limited, circumscribed, recognisable place. Um, And I think that the capacity to like see the present in the future and vice versa comes through really strongly in these I think actually the the uh, the kind of the idea of prediction or the ideation of prediction is one of the factors that has influenced the popularity of, of a lot of this fiction in t- English translation. So, um, for instance, with Ahmed Khaled the Egyptian author who wrote um, the novel Utopia. Um, like Tawfiq had been writing for decades really prolifically in Egypt um in Arabic before that novel came came to be known well both um in amongst Arabophone readers and in English translation and one of the major factors underscoring that was the 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 fact that he wrote it in 2008 and it seemed to bear this uncanny resemblance to the events that unfolded in 2011 um so i think the the nearness of the the predictions that some of the authors that we're, we're reading are making is um, one of the reasons for their popularity. And um, some of the themes that come through strongly in Iraq Plus 100 throughout all of the um, the stories, I think, um, re- revolve around things like petrocapitalist downfall and um, sort of like resource extractivism eventually having a near end point, which is something I think that seems intuitive when we think about it, but the way in, in which it's... Um, sort of uh, articulated in such detail reads with that uncanniness that, that that you describe. I'd actually be really interested to hear what um, both or either of you have to say about the process of putting this volume together. Mm-hmm. I, you know, Blassim has talked about, um, I think he mentions it in the intro, how there was some reluctance among some of the authors to, to write in a science fictional mode. Um, and I think that was, uh, I think maybe Basma mentioned that as well, with their experience of Palestine Plus 100. And um, while you were both speaking, I was thinking about how many of the authors that I'm interested in won't talk about science, like won't call their work science fiction or especially hate the term dystopia. Yeah, I think Sadawi famously mm-hmm. hates that. And he described his book as reportage. And um, the Egyptian author, Niall el hates the term dystopia and, you know, h- hates the idea that he's predicted the Arab Spring as well. So I guess like your guys's experience of actually cohering the volume into like one cohesive entity but has you know with that variation of style and that relationship with genre would be super interesting to hear
0: yeah well um i think it was a, a just unanimous resistance uh, at first with this book it was as i say hassan and i sat down and we just said we want to create an anthology of platform for the other writers and mm. hassan uh, initially came up with the idea of writing about music and i uh, i've come from a kind of manchester music journalism background cultural journalism background so i'm sick of that um so we we then came up with this idea, but everybody initially said no. I don't write science fiction. Not for me. Thanks for mm. thanks for thinking of me, but no. Um, both in this book and the Palestine book, there was a lot of uh, kind of resistance, and also it's very very specific. It's got to be set in this year, and it's got to be in some way about this other event, two thousand and three. In case in this case, um, it was too tight a brief. It was a really really tough brief. But what happened was a lot of writers sort of said, well. I know Comma's work, uh, and I won't say no straight away because that would be a bit impolite. So they sort of left it a couple of weeks. And uh, the writer Mazen Malrof, who is a, um, a Palestinian writer, writes about it on his Facebook. He said it, he just left it a couple of weeks because he didn't want to be impolite and he liked what we did. Uh, but in those two weeks, uh, an idea started to take form. Uh, and what, what it was for him was that he was reading lots of kind of weird superhero, kind of children's books and uh, or young adult books and he was reading st- lots of stuff which was not something he saw himself as being part of or connected to and then suddenly just the invitation allowed him to to think differently when basma talks about it she doesn't include her, her reading as a child um, as part of that but the moment you sort of say yes that's part of it the moment you give a writer or an editor or a reader permission to say this is all mm. perfectly valid this is all you know part of your part of your diet as a reader as a writer then suddenly some of these barriers kind of uh kind of erode slightly with palestine it was a lot more difficult initially because um the writers feel this obligation that Basma talks about to write about to write about the present and to write politically responsive stuff uh, and responsible stuff Um, and to write about you know the the conflict and the the condition of uh, palestinians right now um so the idea of speculative fiction or fantasy or science fiction is all initially a kind of um, seen as a bit of a, a luxury which they can't afford. Um, and in the case of the um, Iraqi writers, I th- I'd say it's similar. Um, it wasn't something you were expecting or felt that you needed at the time.
3: No, it was. Um, it, I, 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 like I said, I struggled with it because. Um, There was a lot around me to talk about. There was a lot of the daily life that I could just simply describe without needing to imagine. I think in a way it is it is a luxury. I I think to to reach the level of writing science fiction is. It's kind of like when you're an artist and you want to do abstract art, you have to first master the techniques of the classicalism before you can be able to express yourself maturely as an abstract artist that's that's the theory at least and so i think um at least with me i i i felt there was i was still struggling to reflect reality as it was in a way where i felt was was good enough for me to, to call myself a writer there was just a lot of reality in my face and i my immediate reaction is i just i want to describe what i see you can't be in iraq you hear about the bombing but i have lived it in slow motion and i need to describe it to you second by second. i need you to feel this in slow motion and so there was no need to go to science fiction and imagine it um because i think it's it's right there it's in a way i think it's like when someone is having therapy whether they have ptsd or they're getting over a bad breakup you talk about the same thing, you talk about your ex over and over and over and over and over again until you get it out of your system and then you look at this more maturely and you try to analyze how things went. I think the same applies with Iraqi writers. I think maybe Iraqi writers who had left Iraq for a decade or so and are learning just now to process this intense violence Um I think that helps them reimagine things. But for someone who's still living it, the here and now, playing Russian roulette every time he or she goes to work, not knowing when a car bomb is going to explode, um, looking at it would be very therapeutic to write in science fiction if they're going to escape to something and imagine something fantastical and comical and beautiful. Um, but I think a writer needs to, to. To be at peace with him or herself, to, to reach some kind of level of serenity where you can look at this differently. But for now, it's like a raw breakup and you're just digesting it and you're, you're just blurbing it out on, on paper. So um,
0: it's, it's interesting because the way I saw these two books or this series, if it becomes a series, is, is essentially, as Whisper It, uh, a bit of a trap for for the reader to say don't worry reader this is about the future this is mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. this is about some kind of f- possible future this you know this isn't about car bombings in, in Mosul or in, in Baghdad or um, lynch mobs in Mosul or um, you know bombings in, in Gaza this isn't about anything that's too depressing it's not real don't worry it's just you know spaceships and laser beams and stuff like that come come and then <laughs> For them to, to realize that this is actually about, entirely about now, and to realize that also they only understand, or they've only been able to understand Palestine or Gaza or uh, Iraq or whatever in news terms. And one of, the th- one of the really interesting quotes that came out of some of the, the interviews that's, uh, that have been done around the Palestine book uh, was Salim Haddad saying that, uh, the Palestinian writer saying that you only ever get kind of an expectation of writing about the present in a kind of a reportage way in a kind of a journalistic way talking about the latest incident or the latest you know crisis or whatever you're expected to be in this mode as a writer um and for him even though these things are pressing on him but to ask him to do something different these things press in on that different space differently that was that was the idea but you're right it is like it is like, it uh, is, it, you know, it's maybe a breakup is too soft a metaphor for it, but it is, it, uh, writers are, do need to process, they do need to escape or um, get through that period. We had Rowan Yagi uh, here, the uh, Gazan writer who was here on a, a residency and is about to go to New York uh, for a, a scholarship, and leaving Gaza is, is a very tricky, exhausting process at the best of times. But also knowing that you're not going back for a while, just floored her. She was she mm. kind of needed to sleep for about two weeks. She was just exhausted because suddenly that 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 tension of of having to be in that space and navigate that space suddenly goes, and at that point the body just collapses because it can collapse.
3: Yep, been there. Yeah, yeah, the adrenaline just yeah. That's the same with writing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love the idea that you were describing these texts kind of being like traps, and I think it would be fascinating to kind of know how in terms of sort of say the not so much the marketing strategy, but the kind of packaging of these texts, how you sort of envisage yourself setting up these traps, because I think it comes up with several different texts, you know, mm. particularly, I mean like if you look at Antoun's writing the changes to his titles when they're translated into English, so you have his most recent novel, Fehris, which is kind of catalogue in a kind of crude translation, but retitled as the Book of Collateral mm. Damage so it's very much buying into this kind of reportage language, you have his other novel, Wada Shajarat Man, which is the pomegranate tree alone, and that's translated into The Corpse Washer. Mm. And you see with Blasim's other collections as well, the ways in which they're kind of taken to bits and put together again in different ways with The Penguin. Yeah, -hmm.
0: it's it's something that I have no say over when I sell the rights to the book. So when Mm. I sell uh, Hassan's rights to Penguin in the US they mm-hmm. kind of wanted to package it in their own way they gave it a very black cover, a very yeah. dark kind of nihilistic cover um, and they wanted to put Iraq in the in subtitle um, and that's the Penguin approach so um, they had a, a book by I'm going to mispronounce his name Zhu Wen um, who had a book called I Love Dollars which is a chi- he's a yeah. Chinese short story writer and the American Penguin edition was I Love Dollars and Other Stories of Modern China <laughs> Uh, they have to sort of remind people, yeah. it has to be in the subtitle that this is from this country, therefore you must be interested in it if you're interested in that country. Um, when we sold Iraq Plus 100 to Tor, mm-hmm. which is a, a science fiction imprint of uh, Macmillan in the States, they again brought out a very nihilistic black cover with a mm-hmm. title. Uh, and their subtitle was, was uh, the f- first uh, anthology of science fiction to emerge from Iraq. Mm-hmm. Now, this was something which we discovered was the case. Um, when we were talking to Hassan, when the book first came out, and we did a tweet of him holding it saying, Apparently, this is the first book of science fiction from Iraq, we've just found out. And that tweet went crazy, uh, and it was the result of it. It was the reason why the book was so successful. Uh, the American publishers actually turn that into their plug line. Well, I love
2: that you put the author biographies at the end of the text yeah. in this collection because so often I find that the, the bi- biographical details are kind of preceding the story, so it kind of is framing that before you even, yeah, even get to By the that. time you get through the intro yeah. and the biographies, yeah.
1: you've been led to have a very particular framing mm-hmm. of the stories then, yeah. so that, that definitely flips it on its in own.
0: In the Palestine Plus plus hundred one, one, we also asked... Uh, everybody they gave their normal biographies, but we also asked them all to give a, a couple of sentences about how the Nakba affected them. Mm-hmm. So they all had a story. You know, my parents were from originally. My grandparents were from Haifa, and my parents grew up in a in a refugee camp in wherever. Uh, and every single one of them had a story about how about dislocation. Okay, well I'm going to wrap up, but um, it just remains for me to thank uh, today's fascinating speakers, uh, Sinead Murphy. Anud and uh, Annie Webster um, and tune in next time thanks for listening to this episode of the Comma Press podcast brought to you in association with the Manchester Metropolitan University thanks guys Storgy seeks to publish and promote exceptional literary short fiction We take pride in discovering new and emerging talent, so if you have a story, visit us at Storgy.com. Discover the macabre secrets of the eerie town of Shallow Creek, blast into dystopian worlds with Exit Earth, or find the blackened husk of the American dream with Roger McKnight's Hopeful Monsters. Competitions with cash prizes and merchandise that any book lover will cherish, check out Storgy.com today.